Downloads of this show are available on Potomatic.com and the Potomatic mobile app. This is Radio Free Brooklyn. And this is Young Parsons Radio! I don't usually wake up this early. Okay. Caller, what is so important? <laughs> I guess it's a show where you talk to people who are hit by lightning. Hey, Colby. It's Tim Keck. What's up, bitch? This is Mary Coolahan. Colby, Colby, it's Jason Trackerberg with a very quick phone call. It's me, Jean Craighead George. It's Monica. Yay. Yay. Can I tell you a pigeon story? He's raising baby pigeons in a pasta colander. Pigeon, is that you? There's enough evidence on here to lock her away for a long time. Oh, I guess this is a maniac show for birds. Stupid, it's childish, and I would never do that to you. Lower East Simon. What kind of art were you doing at the karate school? The art of the empty hands. I take care of feral cats. This is meatball. It's in the house. (laughs) Caller, it lift me out of this slump. Caller! I'm not a fan of the show. I've never heard of it before. Are you back to number one yet? I'm feeling real cool. Get me named a living landmark for New York. I gotta shoot on Rob Shapiro real quick. He's a hat. His fans are morons. I'm a big fan of your radio show, but off the air, you're, you're kind of a terrible person. You just sound like a bunch of dorks. I truly really can't tell if everyone's making fun of us. Is this what this feels this like is, every week? Yeah. Come in. Oh my god. Oh my gosh, it's Colby. You have a nasty habit of surviving. You know what they say about the fittest? Radio Free Brooklyn. This is Young Persons Radio. I'm your host, Colby Smith, here for another fun, fun Sunday morning. I know everybody's up. I know you've all been up since 6 a.m. just because the excitement is like Christmas morning, just waiting for me to get on these airwaves and bring you the laughs. Well, the wait is over, and now is the time. Now is the time. Now is the time. But of course, it's not just me here at Radio Free Brooklyn. We got a lot of other folks here on the studio, such as uh, 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 my pal Elon Danzinger, who uh, will be following us at noon with his found audio show, Lost and Rewound, which is then followed at 1 p.m. by objection to the rule of Radio Free Brooklyn's answer to the Sunday morning political talk show circuit. And then, of course, at 2 p.m., we have What is Love, the dating show. So we got every base covered here, folks. Do not touch that dial this morning. We got talk shows to 11 p.m., so no matter what your interests are, they are covered today. And you will notice that uh, I left out points of order. Our friends, the great sports talk show that follows us every Sunday at 11 a.m., and I left them out on purpose because I will be covering for them today. They are out. 
this and the ne- and next week as well. Uh, so stick around for the eleven o'clock show where I will still be on the air. And uh, I guess I guess we're going to talk all about uh, the Super Bowl today. So uh, stick around at eleven o'clock for that. Uh, in the meantime, if you are a fan of the station and you uh, support what we're doing here, you can go to radiofreebrooklyn.com slash pledge to see how you can get involved, either monetarily or otherwise, in the future of the station. That's radiofreebrooklyn.com slash pledge. And if you want to sponsor this show in particular, which helps us keep the administrative costs of running this thing down, you can go to rfb.nyc slash ypr. That's rfb.nyc slash ypr. And click the link at the bottom of the page that says sponsor this show. Now, Today we have a very, very exciting program. Uh, you know, we, we, the Radio Free Brooklyn, uh, you know, has gone through a number of iterations over the years. Uh, it was started in the uh, uh, the 1960s as a as a community talk show uh, network that has uh, it grown and changed, and it was defunct for a while, and then officially brought back in uh, in uh, 2014 by uh, Tom Tenney uh, and Rob. Uh, I almost said Rob Shapiro. I got my uh I got my my intro reel still uh still in my head. Anyway, Tom and Rob down at the studio. Uh and uh you know, so one one of the things that I've been doing uh, is uh, going through some of the archives of the uh of the station's uh previous iterations and there was a uh, literary review show for much of the 1970s on this network, uh, and I've been uncovering a lot of those episodes, and they've just been really enjoyable for me to listen to and really exciting. Uh, so I thought, especially since we've got these full uh, two hours today, it would be really fun for for me and all the listeners to hear one of those uh, one of those episodes. So I want to play a, a good chunk of uh, a full episode uh, for you. This this show is a, a literary review hour in uh, the 1970s. This episode is from 1976 of a show called A Book If You Please, Radio Free Brooklyn's Literary Review Hour. Uh, so, yeah, so let's not, uh, let's not dilly-dally too much longer. This is Young Persons Radio on Radio Free Brooklyn, and I'm your host, Colby Smith. And we go now to a 1967 vintage episode of Radio Free Brooklyn's A Book If You Please. Good afternoon, good evening, and good morning, Radio Free Brooklyn listeners. And welcome to another thrilling edition of A Book, If You Please, the literary review hour where we provide book reviews and recommendations, but only if you ask politely. I'm your host, Jonathan Spaulding. We have a tremendously delightful show planned for you this morning, but first we shall begin as we always do with a roundup of the most up-to-date literary news. First, the author Norman Mailer, whose most notable works to date include The Naked and the Dead, as well as its sequel The Clothed and Very Much Alive, was arrested over the weekend at Flughafen Airport in Hamburg, Germany, for attempting to store a loaded Luger pistol in his carry-on bag. In what appeared to be a drunken rant, Mailer insisted that he had stolen the Luger from the Fuhrer himself and proceeded to hurl a series of profane insults at a TSA agent including referring to deceased American President John F. Kennedy as, quote, a kike. Mailer himself, a Jew, is expected to be released on bail. Elsewhere, the Hollywood trade publication Variety is reporting that Truman Capote, whose most notable works to date include In Cold Blood, as well as its sequel In Cold Blood 2, Clearing Out the Clutter, 
has been tapped to play Obi-Wan Kenobi in the upcoming sci-fi fantasy film Star Wars. We go now to a book, if you please, exclusive bootlegged audio of Mr. Capote's audition for the role. Not that. Excuse me, my engineer is uh, his first day on the job. And I just want to say again that this is Truman Capote auditioning for the role of Obi-Wan Kenobi. You know, most people avoid Mars Eisley because it's a wretched hive of scum and villainy, but that's precisely where I go there. I think it's very important in your life to be in touch with the dirtiest side of things, and Mars Eisley is the quickest and surest way to get a straight line to that source of the screen. I wouldn't worry too much, Luke. The sand people are just like Gorfa doll. They're easily frightened, and when they run away, they'll come back with a bunch of their friends and gang up on you at a party. If you strike me down, I'll just become more powerful and come back at you with a review in the New York Review of Books. And I don't think you're going to like what I say. That's the author Truman Capote auditioning for the upcoming fantasy science series Star Wars. While we're on the subject of cinema, the New Yorker film critic Pauline Kael has announced that her forthcoming book will not, in fact, be a collection of her essays for the New Yorker magazine, but rather a coffee table book consisting of doodles she made on napkins while bored at the Algonquin Hotel Blue Bar. In his review for the Paris Review, John Updike called the collection surprisingly erotic, hot as hell, and even, quote, boner city. And in perhaps the most shocking news of the week, the author Joan Didion was seen laughing at a joke. Welcome back to a book, if you please, Radio Free Brooklyn's Literary Radio Hour. I'm your host, Jonathan Spaulding. We come now to the meat of the program. I'm joined today by two authors whose public feud makes the one between Norman Mailer and Gore Vidal seem like a harmless lover's quarrel. Kurt Bergel and G.W. Studge both graduated in the same year from the Whittingham Estate School, a secluded and prestigious arts academy in the forest forest regions of Maine. And from that moment on, they seemed locked in a race to see who could publish more with Studge winning early acclaim for his short fiction in The Atlantic Monthly, and Berger making waves with his novella Korea, My Darling, a prose poem following the Battle of Heartbreak Ridge in the Korean War, told from the point of view of an unused hand grenade. Their rivalry soon became a very public pissing contest. Berger leaked to the press an unconfirmed rumor that Studge was only admitted to the Whittingham Estate School on the back of his father's hefty donation, which was allegedly used to establish the school's Whittingham Scholars Program, an annual financial aid package awarded to the students with the biggest feet but the tiniest hands. This, in turn, resulted in Studge pretending not to know who Mr. Burgel was when asked about him on the Mike Douglas show. From there, their relationship has descended into the worst public feud the literary world has ever known, and we are extraordinarily lucky that they have agreed to appear together on this program today, much less in the same room. G.W. Studge, that's George Washington Studge, is the author of Yankee in the Straw, an epic of America, known for his stark depictions of Southern farm life, as well as his magical realist depictions of what life is like for baseball players. His latest work is A Warm Wind Blows. Mr. Sarge, welcome to a book, if you please. Thank you so much for having me, darling. 
Now, Mr. Sturge, I, I understand you, 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 you've just flown in uh, uh, from the farthest reaches of England. Uh, could you tell me a little about that trip? Mm, that is correct. I um, spent some time out at Wiltshire this past week, and, um, and I found it uh, quite, the, quite the great place to clear my head. Mm. That's terrific. Now, I understand that you're, you're, you're not a native to this land. Is that correct? Um, that is correct. So, um, my ancestors were born here, yes, but I was actually raised in England. Mm. Fascinating. I think so many people have that uh, that that background. It just never ceases to, 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 to fascinate me. Mm, now, I, I want to ask you specifically about your background because your major work is is the American epic Yankee in the Straw, uh, and I, I was just wondering if you had any thoughts you wanted to share about how you were able to gain such insights into American society despite not growing up here and really spending not much time here at all in the writing of that book. Mm. Yes, I think. The important thing to remember with all this is that um, writing is so easy. It's such an easy process. Um, trying to imagine what someone might be going through, what their life might be like in a, a place that's different from the place that you live is just as simple as deciding what it's probably like and putting that to paper. Mm, that's fascinating. We go right to my next guest, Mr. Kurt Bergel. Bergel is the author of short story collections, Animals Doing Things Like People Do, and her navel is a bowl for the tiny man. And the histori in the historiographic Trotsky polemic, Cuckold of Petrograd. He is the associate professor of books at the College for the Americas and an editor at the Shrewd Gambit magazine. He is here to discuss his latest literary venture, Large Book About Trains. Mr. Bergel, welcome to the program. Uh, thank you, Mr. Spaulding. It's such a great pleasure to have you here. I know that you have a, 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 a very busy schedule of many public appearances on your plate. They're, they're, I'm in demand all over this fine country, from the farthest corners of Portland, Oregon, mm. to the farthest other corners of Portland, Maine. Mm. Uh, between the two, I'll stop anywhere on the way. But I, it's a delight to be here. And indeed, you did stop along the way. Your, your, your latest book, Large Book About Trains, contains many stops along the way, as they say. Would you care to enlighten us as to the contents of the book? Mr. Spalding, I, I, I have no children, but I am an uncle to many. And when I was trying to decide where I should be pivoting into for my next literary venture, I saw a young boy delight as he leaved through the large sheafs of pages, train after train, in a picture book. I thought, oh, to delight as that boy does in our America's greatest ingenuity, the train. Well, now that would be something to write a book about. Truly, truly, very much I agree. I, I once took an Amtrak train uh, from New York Penn Station, where I, I currently live, and you've heard that right, listeners, I live in New York Penn mm. Station, um, just above the sushi cart. Um, and I took it from New York Penn Station uh, to Boston, Massachusetts, which, as many of our listeners know, is the site of the Boston Tea Party. Uh, and I was uh, shocked to learn um, the violent origins of that event um, when I uh, really I traveled to Boston to uh, partake in its Irish breakfast. It, yes, Mr. Bell. The train went fast, no? It did, it did. Mm, it, 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 it surprised mm, me with mm, its agility and they, speed. They choo-choo so quickly across these great plains that make up the Americas. My book just seeks to capture that, to dignify it with mm. a narrative and to try and guess 
where this train might be chugging to next. Now, Mr. Studge, you're, you're sitting there and, and you're being very polite in that you're not saying anything, but I can see the sweat just dripping from your hot brow. Uh, you seem to be fuming. Oh, is that Mr. Studge? I didn't see him. Uh, you, he's right next to him, Mr. Burrow. Well, uh, pardon me, Jonathan. I think um, if what, what emotion you're interpreting right here is actually uh, quite a bit of confusion. I'm, I'm afraid I'm not sure who this person seated next to me is. Mm, mm. I understand. We were able to set aside the feud for a few moments pre-show and then a few moments on the air, and now it's, it's, it's reared its ugly head. Well, listen, Studge, I'm sure a state of confusion isn't anything new for you. I don't know if... I, I bet you haven't even seen a train. Well, you're over there in foggy Albion. Well, you probably blimp from city to city. Do for, you blimp oh, from city to city? That's the question, Studge. Listen, the practice of using dirigibles for transportation is just commonplace among those... In, the Welsh persuasion, and uh, may I say, please, please keep Albion out of this. Gentlemen, I would ask you to please be civil, as we have many, many respectable listeners who can't bear the slightest hint of conflict. Now, gentlemen, I, I would, you, you both hinted at this, at this, my first question, which is about your work processes, and if you have uh, any rituals that you do every time you sit down to write. So, Mr. Sturge, I'll begin with you. Oh, yes. Well, I start every morning by uh, pouring myself a, a cup of the finest tea, and by tea, of course, I mean a saucer of milk, mm. into which I dip a tea bag. Um, I steep that for 30 to 40 minutes, and uh, at that point, I take a sample to see if it's ready for drinking. If it's not, I let it steep for probably another 30 to 40 minutes. Um, mm. In this time, I've cooked myself a sausage and several eggs, um, usually tend to return to the saucer of milk. Um, if it's got the consistency of tea, which I like, I will drink it. If not, I'll let it steep another probably 30 to 40 minutes. Mm. Um, I'll start new. 30 to 40 ideas. minutes, I'm, I'm sorry. 30 to 40 minutes you let it steep? 30 to 40 minutes each time, darling, yes. Mm, okay. Um, when do you begin the writing? Well, the writing comes after the tea's done. Um, I tend to find that if the tea isn't ready after the first three or four sessions of 30 to 40 minutes, I'll replace the tea bag and start the process anew in the same saucer of milk. Uh, in the meantime, while the tea steeps, I'll occasionally uh, take out a pad of paper and make small doodles in one corner. But uh, truly, the process is mostly waiting for the tea to be done. No, uh at the academy, we called him Milk Boy. Oh, I understand. Little tiny Milk Boy. Yes, tiny Milk Boy. When, in fact, Mr. Studge towers above eight feet. Mm -hmm. I, I found myself to be quite the large Milk Boy indeed, but this did not seem to make a difference with my compatriots. Now, you mentioned... I, I, I want to get back to this question of rituals, but I, I can't help but seize on this thread that you mentioned of uh, the academy, that is the Whittingham Estate School in the Forest Forest regions of Maine where you both spent some time as undergraduates. Am I, am I to understand you were roommates during this period? For a time. Yes. Specifically, what time? I'm, are we talking one semester and then one of you transferred out? Did you perhaps buy an apartment together off campus? Had we bought an apartment together off campus, I mm. would say that it probably would have been a uh, small two-bedroom with a shared living space. Mm. Um However, I must also say that um, 
I'm not entirely sure who this man seated next to me. Oh, okay. Yes. You're clean. This is clean to this story, I see. I entirely am G.W. Studge. It's a pleasure to meet you. Oh, Studge. Kurt Berger. Good to meet you, too. Ha, ha, ha. And yes, if we had bought an apartment off campus, it would have been a two-bedroom apartment, and we would have done it because it would have been cool to get away from the RAs and just do our own mm. thing the whole time. Because that's what best friends might do. Yes. Living well, under I, a I, constant state of censorship, I'm so sorry to interrupt. No, no, not, not at all. I, I just wanted to bring up, you know, you mentioned the sort of oppressive rule of the RAs. Uh, and in fact, one of your earliest short stories for the New Yorker magazine was, uh, was about a, a campus RA. Uh, would you care to elaborate? You're referring, of course, to Bob Stinson. Yes, sir. Bob Stinson. Bob Stinson was a was an undergraduate project that I tossed around to an editor a couple of years after I uh, my publication of my first book. A lock, uh, an exercise, mm. but becoming more portentous every year. We see the current administration. Breathing down our necks more and more like the RA. Mm. Knocking on our door to see what that smell is like the RA. Yes. Telling us that we can't have parties in the dorm room mm. like an RA. You're referring, of course, to uh, Gerald Ford, the current president. That's right. And like Gerald Ford, Gerald Ford, like the RA, mm. at first he tries to pretend he's cool and wears T-shirts that you would recognize mm. and acts like he's he's down to hang out and stuff. But then... Two o'clock, he smells that chum smoke coming out of your door, and he brings in the dogs. Mm. Yes, it's a very powerful moment in the story, if I might say so. When Mr. Bob Stinson, the RA, attacks the children with dogs. With dogs, mm. yes, yes. It's tremendously uh, uh, moving. I had, to, I had to shut the book several times during the reading of that passage, which lasted two paragraphs, if I recall. It's quite a long stretch of dog mauling. Mm. Quite. Now, Mr. Bogle, I want to return to this question of the ritual. I mean, we, 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 we've heard Mr. Sturge describe his, uh, his tea seeping in a, in, a, in a saucer of milk, and I wondered if you shared his affinity for tea or if you had your own ritual. Uh, the writing process, Mr. Spaulding. It's, yeah, have you ever enjoyed a handful of crisp pert nuts from a small dish at a bar? Pert nuts? Just firm crispy nuts. Mm. I imagine your mind dwells simply and passingly on their supple crunch, on the briny tang imparted on your tongue, and tarries not for a moment on how they came to be, oily under your drunkard's touch. But like a nut, serious writing is something that does not simply manifest, but is the product of a journey. My work is something pulled from the Paraguayan loam of my subconscious, mm. cleaned and shelled by the migrant workers, on my rickety typewriter, of my rickety typewriter, huh. it's called a uh, metaphor studge. Keep up. And Mr. Studge, are distributed you... by the grand literary su supply chain conglomerate known as Penguin Publishing. That's beautiful. Mm -hmm. In my opinion, it seems like um, quite an ornate way of saying that he eats a bowl of cashews until he masturbates words onto a piece of paper. It's true that I have to eat nuts to masturbate, it's a separate process from my writing process. Yes, well, I believe, uh, not to differ with you too much, Mr. Studge, but I believe it was Ernest Hemingway who said, uh, write with a boner, edit flaccid. Well, is that true? Was it not? Um, I'll admit that I'm not entirely familiar with uh, Mr. Hemingway's works. Mm. Ah, unfamiliar with Ernest Hemingway. Again. Fascinating. Mm. 
you haven't know, read him. It is of such seclusion. Your talent is so iconoclastic, Mr. Studge, that it, it was able to emerge from a place of such seclusion from American society. Mm -hmm. Indeed. I'll tell you this. Um, in my life, I, I think the first book that I uh, found inspiration from was Strunk and White's Elements of Style. Mm. Um, the second book that I drew inspiration from has yet to be written, even by myself. Though uh, I count uh, myself among the authors who have tried and failed to produce it, and yet, like Sisyphus, I find myself struggling with the chore on a daily basis. Back whipped straight against the summer sky, hands rolling the boulder forward up the side of an indefatigable mountain, upon which I stand completely nude. Wait, so your only inspiration is, is a book that just tells you what grammar is? That's correct. And um, may I say, G.W. Studge, it's a pleasure to meet you. You got me again, Studge. You're a real son of a bitch. Is this what the Academy days were like for both of you? With Studge serving up the razzes and, uh, and you just taking them? Mr. Spaulding, you learn young. I learned young. Mm. No matter how much you might love people and how much you might let them close to you, you can never trust them mm. because in comes the burn right when you least expect it. Yes. You can't explain to your roommate slash best friend that, yes, the nuts were for masturbating. That's why I had them. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Sorry. Mm -hmm. Without him pocketing that kind of information away and using it against you later. Similarly, with the constant reintroductions... The razzing, if you will. Mm -hmm. Did it characterize a relationship? Yes. He's a bully. He's a mean bully. Mm. And he pretends that he, he didn't... Does, but we, we weren't friends. We used to be. It's true. He's rude. Why don't we take a, a brief moment to zoom out of the uh, personal feud? I, I can feel just tensions rising here in the studio and in the listenership at home. So I, I would like to ask... Some of you, some sort of lighter questions about uh, the literary scene in which you inhabit, um, and, and, and some specific things that you have uh, said in, in public interviews. Now, um, Mr. Studge, mm. in your episode of Firing Line with William F. Buckley Jr., you say that the primary struggle throughout American history is not a question of race or class, but rather one of fashion. That's correct. Do you care to elaborate? Well, if you look at all of the problems that America's faced throughout its short existence, I think you can see that the cut of the pant is one of the most controversial things that mm. changes from year to year. Now, um, when the colonial days existed, when people came over from jolly old England, they mm. would wear basically whatever they could find, potato sacks, um, canvas, loose canvas, mm. straw, mm. Woven into uh, uh, thick knits. Yankees in the straw. I'm so sorry. Yankees in the straw. No, <laughs> yes, it's all just, right. That's just where, a fan. That's all. That's all good. It happens on the daily, as they say. I'm sure. But diving into it even deeper, these pants and the changes that happen between them, it's, you can kind of track the progression of American culture there. Um, the pants that the president wears tend to be the pants that the nation favors for the next four to eight years. But what's interesting is that the nation seems able to forecast that desire by electing the president with the pants that they want to wear. I've long maintained... I've never noticed that. That's true. And yet, I'm going through it. I must apologize. I was silent for a moment. I was just going through 
in the in my mind of recent precedents. And my God, you're precisely correct. It maps incredibly well, darling. I, 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 I just want to. This is. I had a whole chapter about this in Cuckle the Petrograd, about about Trotsky's balloon pants. Oh, I about all, how all the proletariat wore balloon pants for for four years until yes. the Great Purge. This, this is my stuff. That's, He's taking my stuff. That's Russia, though. That's quite different. It's a different country entirely. But so one thing, look, well, this is 1976. We have nothing in common with those people. Mm-hmm. We're, you know, you know. This, I can, I can see which way the wind's blowing here. Okay, you're a fan. You're a big fan. I'm a uh, fan of both of yours. That's why I wanted to invite you uh, on my program. Well, you didn't haven't said anything nice to me yet. All right, all right. Well, it, well it, uh, while we're speaking about fashion, uh, um. Yeah, I'll, I'll guess I, I'll get in a bar with Mr. Studge. Um, Gate Elise and Tom Wolfe, both contemporaries of yours. Uh, they're both known as, as, as sort of dandies, if I could use the term. I mean, they're both wearing a very finely tailored suits, mm-hmm. uh, shirts with stripes. In Mr. Wolfe, Wolfe's case, um, a seersucker suit in the summertime is an absolute must. And, um, and yet... It breathes. Mr. Studge, you, in every interview, wear the same sweatshirt that just says college. That's correct. Um, could you elaborate on on that choice? Uh, I don't know. I I know you're a literary man, Mister Spalding, but I imagine your acumen can spur branches out a little bit further to the film world, perhaps. Indeed, yes, yeah. I don't know if you've been looking around lately, but there a fine publication that I've been championing for the last ten years, National Lampoon. Mm, yes, recently financed. A fine film mm. called Animal House. Yes, yes, you've seen advanced screening. I think. Mm. Now, a Mister Belushi, mm. fine young man, affable, yes, full of character. He wears that self same sweatshirt. It says college. Yes, it's funny because usually a sweatshirt advertising a college has the name of the college, but it would seem that he is merely advocating for the experience of college itself. Mm. I find that very amusing. I find it charm. I, I find it quite amusing yes. as well, to say the truth. I, I'm a great admirer of Mr. Belushi's. I like on, on the program on Saturday Night Live when he plays the ninja. Oh, yeah. You know and, what I'm, I'm And he does that to. funny accent, right? Yes, yes, because, good. because, of course, he is not from an Asian country. No, no, and yet no, no, here no. he is on television right. portraying a member of an Asian and race. That's, <laughs> I mean, that's the kind of comedic gem that we're looking for all the time. I, 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 I just, I watch that program and I think it will never be this good again. It's so good now and it will never be this good again. I don't, I don't want to get ahead of you, Mr. Spalding, but you mentioned my dandified colleagues. And I've, I've a rather long story that I was excited to tell on this, on this show mm. that involves the apiothis, if you will. Yes. Api, apiothis. Help me out, Mr. Spalding. I believe it's... Don't laugh, Dudge! I believe it's apotheosis. That's why I'm a right words down guy. Not a say them out loud guy. I understand. I understand. Are you familiar with Marjorie Post? The heiress of uh, the Post Serial Fortune? The dame? The serial dame of the district? Of course. Mm. She would have her annual squash squared party. At her illustrious estate in Forest Hills, D.C., the premise was simple. The literary, artistic, and political elite, the Mid-Atlantic, would gather together of a night for a night of playing squash and eating squash. Hmm. Our abode was then, as it is now, a tre- treasure trove of stolen Romanov art and Fabergé eggs. And I mean, Mr. Spalding, you'd show up there and you'd say, 
Am I in the largest regional wholesale poultry farm in central Iowa? Because this place is Egg City. I digress. At one of these back announced, perhaps in 64, Miss Marjorie Grapenuts was on some royal tear about the, some stucco of Catherine the Great that she'd swindled out of some grass-eating Slavic mook for 100,000 Bosch tokens or what have you. When in strides, this enormous guinea fowl. Ornamental, you see. Uh, part of that obsequious display of wealth that was so in vogue amongst the blue blood at the time. Now, it was me, Johnny Cheever, and Louis Lapham. All of us see us just see us like a squash trunks and dilated out of our mind on Taiwanese Benzoits and the Bombay Sapphire we'd be drinking out of a clawfoot bathtub like pigs at a trough. Anyway, in strides the guinea fowl and Shiva screams out of a slack jaw. It's like a paralytic. Very emotional. I, just the way his face, it was, it was the East Asian dolls, you see. Yes, and, please, uh, I'm sorry, continue. All of the gin. It was like he was coming out of a coma. <laughs> he points at the peacock and he says, There you are, Lapham. A peacock's out, peacock even you, you a fat yale dandy. And Lewis Lapham, editor of, of Hopper's Magazine, you know, he looked at me with such doleful eyes. He was a foppish little sailor man, you know, but he couldn't help it. It was just his way, and now his pride was on the line. Quick as a flash, he was garroting Cheever with his own <laughs> woven leather belt. Tears welling in both their eyes as he remanded Johnny to take his medicine until they both collapsed in a heap mm. in the marble vestibule. Mm. Beautiful. Beautiful story. It's just it's my way of saying that, yes, fashion is important to some. Mm. But be careful who you call dandy, Mr. Mm. Spaulding. Yes. Well, you, you mentioned some of your contemporaries, and I, I want mm. you to bring this up. I would be remiss if I didn't mention that both of you are sort of fixtures on the New York literary scene. And I'm talking about parties at Elaine's, New Yorker cocktail parties. Mainly parties is what I would like to get at in this next question. I mean, mm. w w what are they like, and um, can I be invited? Well, the... The invite list for these things are really quite exclusive. Yeah, it's something that gets extended to you during a chance meeting on the street. No, of course, I understand. I remember the first one that I went to was because I bumped into Lou Reed at a Lower oh. East Side cocktail oh, bar. A punk? Uh, a punk, as it were, yes. Um, but really, quite an extraordinary man. Mm. If you look at some of the work that he's done with Nico in the Velvet Underground, mm. um, he's managed to turn a groan into the voice of a generation. Mm, yeah. And I think that's really quite remarkable. It's remarkable is the word for it, yeah. Mm -hmm. I followed him into the back room, and uh, we did opiates for some time mm -hmm. until I awoke to find out that uh, Andy Warhol had shown up, and the entire thing was now being considered an art exhibit that's been immortalized mm. in the Museum of Modern Art. Mm. Oh, my goodness gracious. This, yeah. is a, this is at a party. This was a party, yes, but um, the, the party rages on to this day somewhere in the east wing of the museum. Uh, it's, uh, it found its way there through the streets of New York, and um, as long as at least one person is imbibing or doing opiates, it is still continued a party. So uh, there's been talk of turning it into a safe injection site just as a means of keeping it going. Mr. Burkle, has this been your experience as well? I've, I... No, it hasn't been my experience. Okay, not so much. All right? 
Uh, Lou Reed, uh, he once kicked me in the back of the knee mm. when I was going down the subway stairs. I fell the whole way. This do art crowd. I don't, I don't care for it. Mm. I, I, I come from a sort of a different scene, almost a different generation, you know. Mm. I, I mean, parties. I mean, Marjorie Post has been dead and buried in the ground for some time now, and thank God she was a real stick in the mud. Mm. I mean, difficult, yes. difficult lady. But I do I miss that kind of glitz and glamour? Absolutely. I mean, who's around anymore? Mm. Dorothy Parker won't get out of her bed. No. She won't leave. No. I mean, she can't. Well, no. Her legs no longer function. They don't work. Do you know that? Because I was talking to her, you know, she, she used to say things like, uh, I'd like to have a martini, one or two at the most, three I'm under the table, four I'm under the host, right? And we laugh at that. That's a classic Parker, Parker bit. But the fact was, she was a ravenous sex addict. And a blackout alcoholic drunk. She was on a rampage between 64 and 69. She burned all her bridges. Stopped talking to her friends. No one knew her. No one knew who she was. You look into her eyes and you just see empty space. Blank empty space. It was like a void in there. And she was my best friend and now she can't get out of her bed. If I remember correctly, those years were actually referred to as 64-69s. Because between the years 64 and 69... <laughs> She's 69, 64 times. <laughs> Studge, you know I like taking you to task, but that is correct. Yes, it's, uh, no it is. It's how many times she did it. And if I may for a moment, if in my friend Lou, um, if you know his sense of humor, that's really just a way of him to tell you that you should still be on your toes. If one's walking around in New York City, one needs to be prepared at all I times. I call it bullying, Studge. Well, you call it bullying because it reminds me of an old proverb my father used to tell about a boy who went to a casino without wearing any pants. The story's long-winded and rather bawdy, but the moral in the end can best be summarized by saying that if you'd like to play at the big boy's table, you'd best not show up with your dick out. Now, I'm glad, Mr. Studge, that you mentioned Lou Reed because you famously, you once fist-fought Bob Dylan over in an argument over Joseph Campbell's monomyth. Oh, that's correct. Is that correct? Yes. yes. That was at uh, McSorley's. At Mc, both of you were at McSorley's. Mm -hmm. I assume one of you overheard the other talking about Mr. Campbell. Uh, well, we were having the conversation directly. Mm. We were at one of the um, booths in the front of the room, and we had a disagreement about the nature of the atonement with the father and Abiothis afterwards. Um, I, I found myself... Oh, apostasis. I beg your pardon. So... You sound like a stupid mook. Oh, I'm I'm terribly sorry. I I wasn't aware there was someone else in this room with us. Um Pardon me, uh, pardon my manners. George Washington starts oh, to put you, you darling. Son of a bitch. I, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I just I can't bear these tensions any longer. Where did this feud come from? Was it during was it during the William the Whittingham estate school days? Is that where it's from? Are you are you uh, uh, angry? I'm just uh, you leaked to the press that the only reason he got into the school was on the back of his father's donation, which established the scholarship for the it's kids true. with the tiny feet and the big hands, so perhaps it was vice versa. And I'm just wondering what motivated you to do that. What is it about each other that, that so burns you up? What motivated you to do it? I think it's brave. Look at his feet. Look at his tiny hands. They wouldn't let him into school. They wouldn't. Back then, kids like that couldn't go to school. They had to learn on their own somehow. But and? Not, you get... You keep trying to, you seem like you're digging around, trying to figure out if it's some kind of a 
personal feud, some kind of it's not. I just I assumed just all writers were friends. I just think, based on the literature and the literature alone, that GW, my good friend over here, is a fraud, a pretender, and a usurper. Uh, turkey in the straw. <laughs> Yankee in the straw. Yankee in the straw. Oh, oops. It was about a dumb honky, so I assumed that's what it was called. A dumb called. honky. A dumb honky. Kurt, I write, about, I write about my interactions with wilderness. That is, the greatest wilderness of all. A man's heart. Yankee in the Straw tells the story of a young boy who leaves his home at 12 years old to start a family of his own, only to end up in debtor's prison, followed by the major leagues and later the White House. You'll find that Betwixt each of my covers, Kurt, pulses a river of life-giving blood, a steady stream of words and phrases alternatingly as soothing as mother's milk and as scathing as father's piss, delivering necessary life-giving oxygen to literary organs and connective tissue. The blood type of this river is O-negative because, like a Visa card, it's invariably accepted by everyone. Now, Kurt, can you say the same about your latest work, Large Book About Trains? Uh, of course I can. Everyone likes trains. You like to get on them, they zoom around. They're segmented like American society. They're long like American society. Mm. We're all different people, but we get in a train and we're going the same place. We're on the same track. We're in different cars. Mm. That's all. You can sleep on a train. I think that's pretty neat. Mm. Listen, if, if, if Large Book About Trains isn't as probing perhaps, is my previous work. Is that what a book has to be about? You mm. know what I mean? It can just be a celebration, an appreciation. Of course. Of something that's as, it's as great and as, as quintessential to American life as culture and culture as the train. Mm. And I don't think I need to be lectured on what makes our country so great and rich in tradition by some limey daddy's boy with big feet and small hands. Mm. And I won't do it. Mm. Mm. Well, if you ask me, that idea, that entire comparison has less legs than your friend Margot. Her name is Dorothy. And if you had read Strunk and White, you'd know it was fewer legs. Rules are meant to be broken, my dear. Once one understands the concept of the literary world enough, they can bend the words and phrases to their will. It's a process called writing, you see. You really ought to try it sometime. Well, you sound dumb when you do it. You sound stupid and dumb. Listen, Mr. Spalding, you want to know the truth? Yes. I think Yankee and the Straw is fine. Mm. I think it's pretty good, actually. Oh. I read it on a train. Oh, how fitting. But let me ask you a question. Me and Mr. GW, we lived together for some years. Do you like toast, Mr. Spaulding? Uh, yeah, I, I, I do. I butter up a couple of slices every morning. Oh, did you hear that? He butters up a couple slices. You don't jelly him up first? Well, no, I... Well, don't lead, don't lead him, uh, Mr. Spaulding. Take us through the process of how you make toast in the morning. Mm, yes, well... I guess the process of making toast for me really begins at the supermarket several days prior mm. uh, in which I, I, I attend the baking counter and I ask them uh, for a, a neat French baguette. And if the baguette they present to me is not neat to my liking, 
I send it back, and I do not visit that grocery chain again. Mm. Wait, wait, Currently, wait, you, excuse me? You say neat like no ice? What do you mean neat? Because they shouldn't I be mean, giving you ice with your baguette, darling. I mean, having, having a nice shape and clean with no frills or tassels. I must ask, was that having a nice shape or an ice shape? Cube. If they're giving AKA you, AKA cube. If they're giving you cubed or even shaven ice mm. with your baguette, that's quite wrong. Mm, Not yes. incorrect. Well, be that as it may, I'm now attending a grocery store for my uh, uh, um, for my bread that is five miles on foot from my home. Mm. I've been driven out of every one uh, uh, since uh, in in the near proximity. So once I once I retain the bread from the store, I bring it back home and I cut it in slices with a, with a large knife and I place each one in the to- toaster. Set it. This, this is the Dyson toaster, you understand? And mm-hmm. I find that on Dyson toasters, the number five setting is in fact the one that the produces, produces the best burn on the toast. And mm-hmm. so I set it at number five, and that takes uh, several minutes. And I, I re- retrieve the toast from the toaster. Once I hear the ding, and the toast shoots up into the air like a, like a glorious volcano. And then I, I place the toast on a piece of paper, and I spread, I spread Lando Lakes on top of it. Whipped? Is that, that whipped? Mm, yes, yes. And then I eat it like that. Uh, I, I don't uh, use jelly often. I just stick with the butter. Uh, if I knew this was going to be an ambush, if I knew this was going to be some kind of gotcha journalism, I would never agree to come on here, Mr. Spalding. Frankly, I feel in- attacked and I feel insulted. Well, I don't, and I don't believe you. I don't know what you mean. Quite I the contrary. I'm, I'm feeling quite good right now. I, I, I don't think a, a man of, of, of breeding mm. puts bread and butter in his mouth and calls it that and doesn't pucker up and say, oof. I need something to cut through all that fat and salt. I need something to sort of lighten it on my palate day in and day out. Unless, I mean, and you're a man of means, Mr. Spaulding. Mm. You're, you're not some beggar on the street no. scraping butter off a, off a of a greasy piece of paper you found in a garbage can mm. and lopping it on bread as you can. Mm. You have access to jelly. You have access to marmalade, I assume. Mm, certainly. And you choose not to use it. Well, no. When I, when I, when I, when taste. Personal taste. Evil is only possible, Mr. Spaulding, when good men do nothing. Mm. Some people thought right. fighting Nazis wasn't to their taste. My father, for example, he didn't care for it. But he did it because he was in that special draft for just rich people where they pay you to go. Oh, it's, I understand. And then they keep you out of it. It's like the, it's like the air-conditioned tent at Bonnaroo. They just, it's not really that bad at all. But you can say you went. If I recall, you said that your father fought in the war with uh, porcelain bullets. Is that correct? Hand that is correct. That is not a poetic phrase. As lovely as it sounds, it would be a good band name. But uh, he literally used porcelain bullets. They were cheaper at the time. Hmm. Now... Um, could we get back to the relevance of the butter question? So, is, am I to understand that the, the, your disagreement stems from a disagreement about the proper treatment of toast? I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that at all. I'd say that our disagreement stems from a proper understanding of the behavior of a man within a society. Human beings are expected to comply with a certain level of conduct. Um, that conduct dictates that one 
toast spread and puts butter upon it before spreading jelly. Now, my compatriot over here, if I did know him better, seems like someone who might put toast in the toaster and bring it out and put jelly directly upon it, like some kind of a savage or a, a trash man, as he described earlier. To speak to Mr... <sighs> yes, a human being lives in a society and is expected to comport himself by those rules. However, the rights, desires, and wants of the individual far supersede the mandates of the society. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a brave new world versus 1984 kind of question, Mr. Spaulding. What, what is a man's role in this world, in this lifetime? Is it to simply say yes to the powers that be, telling him what to do, where to put his butter, and when? <clears throat> or is it to listen to what's coming in on the inside? And I don't mean the stomach. I mean like the sternum kind of right between the boobs if he's fat. Mm. <laughs> listen to that voice and act accordingly. That's what I think. I mean, that's what... A couple of my books has been about it. Comes up in large books mm. about trains. Yes, uh, the sternum, I would say, is a recurring motif in certainly. your work. Uh, I, I believe in your in your early fiction in your novella Korea, my darling. You refer to the sternum as the mouthpiece of the soul. Well, I think that's pretty self-explanatory, Mister Spaulding. Mm. The sternum rests over the chest, protects the heart, the lungs, and if you. Squeeze really hard, it makes a little noise. Mm. Uh, which my doctors tell me is simply just excess air passing through the porous material inside the bone. Yes. The sternum protects, <laughs> but it also expresses. I, I, I don't see much. I mean, Korea, my darling, was, was many, many years ago. I was I, a, yes, a simple true. boy. I understand. A simple boy. Now, if you want to talk about naval. If you want to talk about the cuckold of Petrograd, be my guest. I, I would I love talk to talk about, about Darling. This is, of course, you're referring to your short story collection. Her navel is a bowl for the tiny man. I believe uh, we, we have about not quite ten minutes left in the program now, but I would love to get into sexual politics uh, with both of you, um, as you've both. Uh, this is this is sort of, I, I guess, a key function of, of of life, not only in America but indeed in the larger world. And, and I, you've both written so eloquently about it. Um, mm. I would love to, if we could just spend a few moments on sexual politics. And I, I I'll start with you, Mr. Bogle, because, because uh, uh, her navel is a pool for the tiny men. It's such an evocative image uh, and sort of uh, it renders female empowerment uh, 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 in a matter of um, actual size, well, I like mean, physical size. Size actually play, plays a role. Yeah. So in your estimation, uh, what we refer to when female empowerment is best achieved when given women mushrooms, not unlike uh, are seen in the Mario video game series, so that they can grow larger than men and host them in <laughs> in pools in their navels. What if women were giants? They'd have nothing to be scared of anymore, huh? Maybe. Maybe. So for you, Attack of the 50-Foot Women is not, in fact, a horror movie, but a, but a bold, brave vision of the future. It's a, it's a second-wave feminist mandate. And, and, I mean, it, it is very, it's astute of you, Mr. Spalding, to read between the lines mm. of that short story collection uh, and understand its feminist overtones, which are strong, but they are unexplicit. Mm. Obviously, the book is an erotic tale mm. about men living in the enormous navel of a beautiful woman. Yeah. They arrive there out of some kind of erotic compulsion, but once there, 
form a society around the navel and fall in love with each other. Mm. The men do. It's so it's 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 feminist, but also super gay. Yes. I think, People said I, think I couldn't do it. I think it's beautiful. Mm. Now, by contrast, Mr. Studge, mm. you once referred to Norman Mailer's An American Dream, in which the protagonist murders his wife a third of the way through the book and then finds that his life becomes inextricably better. Mm. You called that book the finest work produced on the 20th century and probably the 19th century in America or in any other society with written word. I'd like to append to that that the 18th century as well. I think we can oh, retroactively declare this one of the best works of all time. Right. Would you care to elaborate on that claim? Yes. Um, I think that people tend to downplay the erotic nature of murder. You see, there's a certain thrill that comes from killing a man or a woman that you really can't get in anything else. It's a, it's a special kind of power, and I have heard many times that sex is mostly about power for some people. Mm. I'm not sure if that holds true for myself, having never had sex, but uh, mm. I have murdered quite some people and find it to be, I would guess, about the same experience. Well, uh, the knife does go in like a penis does. Mm. Yes. Mm. Penetrably Shakespeare wrote about that. Um, Henry, the, Henry, one of the Henrys. What's the one with Falstaff and, and how? Do you recall? Henry the, the mm. sixth. No. <laughs> it's definitely not that one. Now I've, we, I think we, it was Henry too. Very quickly, gentlemen, I want to ask you about about a choice that you have in common. Both of you in your uh, political lives chose to uh, vehemently abstain from the anti-Vietnam War movement in the late 60s and the early 70s uh, uh, under Presidents Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon. And I was wondering if uh, you, you could, you know, shed some insight into why you chose to uh, take, in some cases, a, an even pro-war stance. Yes, well, I, uh, I'll start. For me, it's a question of sexual gratification. I think um, trying to get people... To avoid fighting in the war is robbing them of one of the most thrilling experiences they're ever likely to have in their lives. Mm. Uh, Mr. Burgle. I, 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 the young are weak. It's simple. You don't want to go over there and, and have a nice war? What? You're too good for a nice little air-conditioned room? Hanging out, watching the action and going back? That's too much for you? Mm. No. No. Go over there. Watch the murders happen. It's not so bad. It's a weekend. Mm. Yes, if you just go for one weekend, it's not that bad at all. It really isn't. Yeah, it's hot. Bring a camel back. <laughs> I think the problem with military, and I, I, I think Mr. Burgle would agree, is that um, there's too much of a focus on sending people over for a long period of time. I've long maintained that if troops... Yes. If troops were deployed for just a day or two at a time, say Friday night to Monday morning. Coming at work at like noon Monday? Right. Coming in coming into work. I beg your pardon. Coming into work a bit late on Monday. American industry would continue. We'd get more done during the week. Mm. And people in the war would be more relaxed because it's their time off. They'd be choosing to be there rather than being drafted in. And conversely, 
when they are home at work, people will be like, oh, TGIF, right? I'm like, oh, not so much. I got to go to war this weekend. They'll be happier to get back, happier to do work better. Exactly. I understand. Now, uh, we're running, we have a ghastly small amount of time left on this program, so I've wondered if either of you had any parting words for the listeners as we we begin to conclude this edition of a book, if you please. Mr. Bogle? I I mean, keep on drucking. Keep on trucking. Keep on trucking. Yes. I, yeah. Are we is that a, perhaps a hint to your next work, Mister Burgle? Mm, a follow-up to a large book perhaps, about trains. Perhaps. Getting into the highbrow world of trucks, as it is. A truck is like a train with no tracks. Oh my goodness. Hmm. God help us if you use that as the title. I don't know. I think it's good. <laughs> and Mister Studge. Well, Jonathan. I'd like to apologize. No, please, Mr. Turgle. I'd like to apologize. Drink your sugary beverage right into the microphone, please. It's a beer. That no doubt has many sugars inside of it, Mr. Burgle. I'm so sorry, Mr. Sturge. Please continue. It's quite all right, John. I would like to apologize. I'd like to take this time to apologize. Hmm. To all the listeners out there, you no doubt expected a spirited debate between two titans of industry and instead been met by a cruel inversion of the David and Goliath tale. Wherein Goliath crushes David and uses the voice bones to scratch his asshole. Uh, Mr. Burgle, I'd be remiss if I didn't give you a chance to respond. I hate you so much. You're mean. Oh, I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm George Washington Studge. It's a pleasure to meet you. Studge! And I think that's where we have, fortunately, have to end this program today. Uh, uh, listeners, uh, I want to thank you again for tuning into a book, if you please. Uh, I'm Jonathan Spaulding here on Radio Free Brooklyn. Uh, and, and please stay tuned for Points of Order <laughs> right after my program, a great sports talk show, and I'm sure they'll be talking about the upcoming Super Bowl match. I've been Jonathan Spaulding here on Radio Free Brooklyn for a book, if you please. Please tune in next week where I will have Truman Capote on the program to discuss his bizarre claims about apples and pears being at the core of every book. I want to go out, of course, to our theme music, as always. Thank you for listening, and good booking, everyone.